Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke, the very first chapter. And I want you to hold your spot there. We're going to get there soon enough. We're going to look at a, a few passages of Scripture today as we continue in the series called Hero. And, uh, but Luke, chapter 1, is kind of the biggest block we're going to get to here soon enough. So just hold your spot there, Luke chapter, uh, Luke, chapter 1. So there was a famous conductor, an orchestra conductor, who was asked the question, what did he feel like was the most important uh, piece in the orchestra? What, what was the most important instrument that could be played in the orchestra? Now, for some of you who have a music background, I don't have a music background. I have a hard enough time playing the radio, much less an instrument. And so if you're one of those, you're, you're probably already thinking through all the orchestra pieces, kind of what is the most important, what do you feel like in your own personal opinion? Well, he was asked this question, and uh, his answer was a little, bit, a little bit shocking. This was the response. He said, when asked uh, the most difficult instrument to play, he said, second fiddle. I could always get plenty of first violinists, he said, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And so for him, the most important component was not the person who sat in the first chair, it was the one who sat in the second the one who knew that they were not in the limelight, the one who knew they were not in the spotlight, the one they knew that they weren't necessarily the one considered to be the most skilled, but it was that person who was most important to the whole entire piece, that they recognized their role and that they play with the same enthusiasm as if they were the one who held that first chair. That, he would say, would be the most difficult position and, and perhaps the most important position of all. Now, I would say for all of pretty much the whole entire world, I mean, apart from, from Jesus, for all of us, before we had a relationship with Jesus, we cared more about being most rather than least, right? I think that would probably apply to just about everybody. You'd want to be most, not least. You'd want to be first, not last. You'd want to be recognized, not overlooked. You'd want to be remembered, not forgotten, right? That, that's kind of the desire for most people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Whenever we we place our faith in Jesus, it's not as though all of that goes away and gets immediately transformed. For a lot of us, in our own relationship with Christ, even though we're being transformed and even though we have been redeemed like we just sang about, there is still at times this tendency and this desire to be first, to be most, to be recognized, and to be remembered, right? And, and, and to be somewhat in the spotlight rather than to be relegated back where nobody even recognizes that you're there. That can be a struggle for a lot of people. That can be a struggle, a significant struggle for a lot of people, even those who have a relationship with Jesus. There's a saying that I heard years ago. It said, to know whether or not you truly have the heart of a servant, right, where you put yourself second and put someone else first, to truly know whether you have the heart of a servant, ask yourself, how do you respond when you're treated like one? How do you respond when you are treated like a servant? Because if you bow up and if you get all mad and if you say, I can't believe that person didn't do this or I can't believe that they didn't see this or I can't believe that I didn't get thanks for that, right? If you're treated like a servant and have issue with it, right, there's probably a good chance that you or we don't have the heart of a servant. But if we can embrace that and recognize that and it doesn't bother us and it doesn't affect us negatively, right, when we're treated like a servant, that's a pretty good indication that you've got the heart of one, that you've got the heart of a servant that you've got a heart that is ultimately humble. Now, in this series, what we've been doing is we've been walking through 
the series titled Hero. And we've been looking at this dynamic where God is the ultimate hero of every victory story in the Bible. Everyone that you read, David, everyone that you read that, that, that includes any Old Testament, New Testament character, uh, people like Simon Peter, people like Joshua, women like Esther, all of those victory stories that we've unpacked here that we see in the scripture, God is the ultimate hero. He's the one who's the hero of the whole story. David, for example, when he defeated Goliath, it's not a story about David nearly as much as it is about God. God was the one who ultimately provided for his people by slaying the enemy. When you look at the Israelites crossing the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, there's a temptation for us to say, man, look at Moses. What a leader. What a hero he was. He led them all the way across the Red Sea. That's not a story about Moses nearly as much as it's a story about a God who rescues and delivers his people who trust in him and who follow his lead, right? It's always a story about God. So in the series, we're looking at how God is the ultimate hero. But aside from the work that Jesus did on the cross, which only he could accomplish, more often than not, what God does is, is that he demonstrates himself as a hero through the lives of people who know him and are yielded to him. People like David, women like Esther, people like others that come to your mind, right, who God used ultimately in your life. And so in this series, what we've been looking at has been these different hero qualities. And as we roll out a different figure from Scripture, it's kind of been like a biographical study in some ways, right? We just looked at different personalities in the Bible. What we've also done is looked at certain hero qualities that they've carried. And so when we looked at Abraham, we looked at that, that quality that he had as a hero of trusting God, that if you're going to be a hero in someone's life, right, not so you can get credit, but just so you can say that God used you, that you're going to have to trust him too, right? You're going to have to demonstrate faith. When you look at people like Esther, Esther embraced the moment. She recognized this is a moment that God has prepared me for and that he is leading me to step into, to lean into it, to embrace it, not run from it. And when God wants to use you as a hero in someone else's life, you're going to have to ultimately embrace that moment as well. People like Moses who pushed aside their fears and their excuses. God wants to use you like a hero. You're going to have ultimately fears and excuses that come with opportunities as well. You're going to have to push those aside. You're going to have to distance those from you. People like Joshua who dis displayed courage, right? He, he, he led the people of Israel. He, he, he took them into battle. He, he fought the battle of Jericho, right? He had courage that was demonstrated. It takes courage to be a hero today. We looked at the story of the Good Samaritan and how he demonstrated in that parable, he demonstrated selflessness. I mean, he, at great expense, he stepped into the chaos of another person who had a need in his life. And he pushed his own agenda and his own timeline and even his own finances to the side. And he used all of that to ultimately speak, uh, 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 lean into and to help someone who was in need. He was, he was, a, he was a hero to that person. He was a hero in a very tangible way. We looked at uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila just a few weeks ago and how they lived their life on mission. They made an enormous difference as a result of it. Daniel we looked at most recently. and we, we saw in Daniel's life how he was one who ultimately honored God no matter the cost. And in all those examples, they were heroes. Jason preached a couple of weeks ago about the, a father and how, how God is our ultimate father. Uh, those who serve their role as father or father figure have an opportunity to be a hero. Jeremy preached a couple of months ago about Simon Peter and how Simon Peter went from zero when he was at his worst, denying that he even knew Jesus, ultimately to hero, where he was formulative in the very beginning of the early church, wrote two books of the New Testament, right? So we looked at all these different, uh, all these different characters, all these personalities. We 
extracted these hero qualities because God wants to use you as a hero in people's lives as well. And they're all going to be, they're all going to be equally important. And so today we're going to add to the mix. We're going to look at a, at a figure from Scripture that you may be familiar with. And we're going to pull out a quality from his life as well. The figure we're going to look at today is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And uh, the quality that he demonstrates is the quality of humility. John the Baptist, the quality of humility. So I was in the office, I was bored this week, and I walked the hallway at a certain moment, and I asked some of the guys, I said, so if I was to pull out a name of a guy in the Bible, and I were to call him JB, who do you think it would be? And before I even got the words out of my mouth, Adam said, John the Baptist. And it's like, how did he get this so fast, right? I thought I had a stumper of a question, right? He's not referred to as John the Baptist, but he is referred to, or, or as JB, but he is referred to as John the Baptist in the Bible. We know his story, certain elements of it, but I'll be willing to say, because I've experienced this myself, that, that maybe you've never really put together all of the components of the life of John the Baptist to get this well-rounded picture of the type of person that he was. For me, as I prepared this message this week, it was incredibly helpful because I was able to pull out certain things that I knew about him, but I had never really pieced together, and I was never able to really understand the depth of his humility and the difference that it made ultimately through his life. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at his life a bit today. We're going to look at the, the quality, the hero quality of humility, and I think it's going to be applicable for every single one of us. So if I were to ask you to take a bucket and to place it in front of you, speaking figuratively. And if I were to ask you to take another bucket and to set it close by here, let's say, and if I were to ask you to wring out of your life all of the pride that is inside of you into one bucket, and then if I were to ask you to go to the other bucket and to wring out of your life all of the humility that's in there and in your heart and in your life, which of those two buckets, when you would step back and take a look, would contain the most? For a lot of people, they would say, you know what, I have just a little bit more pride in my life than I do humility. For others, they would say, I don't have any pride, and maybe those are the ones that are the most prideful of all, right? But oftentimes, pride shows itself in a variety of ways. Sometimes it shows itself more outwardly, like the way the world thinks of pride whenever they, whenever they think of a leader, when they think of a hero they often think of the person who's loud the person who's incredibly self-confident the person who is in the limelight and loves every minute of it the one who is just larger than life and 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 incredibly vocal and in charge right that's what the world thinks about when they think about a hero they think about pride in a lot of ways and maybe for you the way uh, pride shows itself is is when you can't afford to lose an argument you've always got to be the one who wins in the argument you've always got to be sure that your voice is heard you've always got to be the one who's leading you're the, always the one who's steering right maybe pride shows itself in a number of different ways in you but if you were to wring all of it out and all the humility out which one would be the most I think we need to understand how detrimental pride can be in our lives. There's a Christian author who is perhaps maybe the most influential Christian author of his century, a man named C.S. Lewis. Take a look at this quote of what he says specifically about pride. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride, think about this, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Perhaps the most influential Christian author of his day, of his century, has this to say about pride, and I think he's nailed it. 
Another Christian author, John R. W. Stott, said, Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Principle number one, true heroes are people of humility. True heroes are people of humility. Now, let me just say, again, that's going to run counter, probably, to what this world would say, and it may run counter to most everything that you've ever believed about what it means to make a difference in another person's life. Why would we take humility and drag it into the conversation about what it means to be a hero? Why, why would we do that? Again, it doesn't seem to fit. Heroes are ones that are in the spotlight. Heroes are the ones who are bold. Heroes are the ones who, who are comfortable and confident in themselves. Why, why would we seem to take this, this, uh, this conversation about heroes and drag the, the topic of humility necessarily into it? He, here's why. Because the, a true hero understands that the only reason they are a hero is because God has done his work through them. Right? They understand that it's not about themselves. They understand that it's not because of who they are or what they did, but rather they understand that God is the ultimate hero. That's what a true hero understands. God is the ultimate hero, and a true hero is very quick to deflect and to defer and to point all the glory and all the credit and all the applause ultimately to the hero, God himself. Right? That's what a true hero does. True heroes are people of humility. Principle number two comes right on the heels of that. And so a hero understands that balance. There's a very fine line. There's a balance that we have to walk between knowing that God can use us and yet on the reverse side of that, knowing that we can do nothing without him. Right, a hero understands that dynamic. A hero understands that. There's this component to life that when you're a hero, there's this understanding, this fine line of knowing that, yes, God can do anything through me. So, so there's no room. Here's what happens in the Christian church oftentimes. Here, here's where so many Christians miss an opportunity to be a hero in somebody else's life. Not so they can applaud themselves, but so that they can ultimately let God use them. Here's why we often miss it, because whenever the opportunity presents itself, we say some excuse that says, you know what, I'm not cut out for that. I can't help them. You know what, I have nothing to add. You know what, I can't make a difference in their lives. You know what, I'm not the person that God would want to use. Let, let God use the professionals. You know, God is never going to want to use me, and we miss our opportunities. No, a hero understands the, the, the fine line, that balance between knowing that God can use me, I do have something to bring to the mix, but at the end of the day, I can't do anything without him. Right, John chapter 15, verse five, look at what, what Jesus said. This is what Jesus would say himself. John 15, verse five, I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? I'm the tree trunk, I, I'm, I'm the main vine, I'm the one who produces the fruit, not you, you're a branch. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he who is, is engrafted in me, who knows me in relationship, right? The one who is ultimately surrendered to me, finds his life in me, that person bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's that fine line. If you're engrafted in me, Jesus says, I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to guide you, and I'm going to want to be a hero through your life, right? So you, you can do this, <laughs> right? Just follow my lead. Just like all these other people that we've looked at in the series in scripture, just follow my lead. You can do this. I'm going to equip you, and I'm going to use you, but understand don't get the big head. Don't be filled with pride. Don't think you can just be a hero without me because apart from me, you can't do one thing. Right? It's this, there's this tension that's there, this balance between understanding that God can do anything through us and yet at the same time, ultimately, we can't do anything apart from him. 
And John the Baptist, I think, is a great example of this specifically. He, he, he is, John the Baptist is an interesting figure in the New Testament. He's a little quirky, right? If you invited him to your party, right? If you had a big birthday party, invited all your friends, John the Baptist showed up, he's not going to be dressed like everybody else, all right? He's not going to be eaten out of the chips and dip. He's going to bring his own food, and you're probably not going to like it, okay? He's a little quirky. John the Baptist is not kind of the ordinary type person. He marched to the beat of his own drum, and yet he was a hero, and yet had, at the same time, every reason to be prideful in himself. Let me, let me share a few reasons why. One, he was the first prophet that Israel had for 400 years. At the end of the New Testament, when the, when the New Te- or end of the Old Testament, excuse me, at the end of the Old Testament, when the Old Testament closes, with the prophet Malachi, or as my Old Testament professor and Jason's Old Testament professor probably said, that Italian prophet Malachi, right? When, when Malachi closes at the end of the Old Testament, right, the prophetic voice goes silent. No more prophets for 400 years. Maybe you didn't realize this. When the New Testament starts, at the beginning of the New Testament era, there were 400 years of gapped silence between that New Testament and the Old Testament. No prophet was sent to the nation of Israel for those 400 years. Now, there were a lot of moving pieces that would take place there. There would be certain political changes that would come. There would be uh, changes in the culture that would take place. But there would be no prophet for 400 years. When you see John the Baptist open his mouth in the Gospels, that was the first prophet that Israel had heard for four centuries. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> John the Baptist also, when you begin to piece his, score, his story together in Scripture, one of the things that comes out is that he was also actually foretold, he was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Now you may think, wait a minute, didn't Isaiah prophesy and foretell the birth of the Messiah? Yes, he did. We often read from Isaiah at Christmas time, right? He did prophesy about the arrival of Jesus 700 years before he would be born, but he also prophesied the arrival of John the Baptist as well 700 years before. Isaiah chapter 40, look at what it says in verse 3 and verse 4. A voice is calling. This is 700 years before he's born. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Now we're going to get to the context of that in a minute, but it's going to be clear in the New Testament that Isaiah was talking about John the Baptist coming 700 years later. Now I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. I don't recall any prophet 700 years ago prophesied that Brooks Kale was going to be born in Savannah, Georgia. I don't, I don't think that ever happened, right? John the Baptist, pretty big deal. He also had a miraculous birth. His parents, Zacharias, Elizabeth, were both advanced in age. She was unable to bear children. We find that out as we also piece together his story from the Gospels. His birth was literally a miracle. He was a relative of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 36. How cool is this? Related to the Messiah. Look at what Luke says here in this first chapter, 36 verse. He says, as the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus... The angel says, and behold, even your relative, he says to Mary, your relative Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, also has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. He is a relative of Jesus, John the Baptist is. Some would say cousins, it doesn't officially say in what capacity the two moms were relatives. We would assume as well Jesus and John the Baptist would be related. He was also acclaimed by an angel who visited his father 
Luke chapter 1. Let's go ahead and turn here. This is where you've been holding your spot. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. And look at what the angel who visits his dad, my dad, my dad, um, he never made mention in my upbringing of an angel visiting him before I was born. That's okay. I haven't been scarred by that, but I doubt you have either. But an angel visited John the Baptist's dad. Look at what he says. John chapter 1, verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, that's John the Baptist's father, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You'll give him the name John. You'll have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What are some of the things the angel says to his to his dad before he's even born he says this this person john the baptist is going to be great in the sight of the lord he's going to be set apart the angel would say he's going to be one who god uses as an instrument of revival he's going to bring revival he's going to turn the hearts of the people of israel god is going to use him as a tool he's going to use him as an instrument he's going to be filled with the holy spirit from the time he's in his mother's womb Right, I won't camp on this, but it's interesting. I mean, in all this debate that swirls right now with all the Roe v. Wade stuff, that there is a biblical picture there that, that if, if life in the womb, in John the Baptist's case, can be filled with the Spirit, that would seem to indicate personhood there, right? So this is a person who had every reason to be proud. He had every reason to be proud. I mean, prophesied 700 years before you're born, a relative of the Messiah, you're the first prophetic voice in four centuries in the people of Israel's lives. You've been acclaimed by an angel who comes, and Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 11 would say that of all people born of a woman, obviously outside of Jesus himself, there would be none greater than John the Baptist. I mean, this guy seemed to have it all, Right? He seemed to have it all. He seemed to have everything pulled together. And yet this person who had so many reasons to go down the road of pride to say, everybody line up behind me. I'm the man with the mic, right? Everybody listen to what I say. Everybody follow my lead because I'm the one in charge here. He had every reason to do that, right? And he could have thrown his weight around and yet it was John the Baptist who demonstrated humility. He was a hero, not because he was prideful. He was a hero because he was humble. And listen, when we begin to assert ourselves in pride, we begin to embrace pride in our lives, you don't set yourself up to partner with Jesus in his work. You set yourself up as an opponent to Jesus in his work. John the Baptist had every reason to embrace pride, and yet he chose second fiddle, he chose second chair, he chose second place, he chose ultimately to let God be the hero, and he was just going to be the ultimate holy MC that would introduce the Messiah. And here's what his message was. Flip over with me to Matthew, if you would, chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And let me just say before I read this, that, that if in your mind you're beginning to piece this little picture together that a hero means to be weak, it doesn't mean that. I mean, John the Baptist was the furthest thing from weak that you can imagine. I mean, you're about to see in this passage. And and the whole reason that he died, ultimately, was linked to his resistance to weakness. And it was because of his boldness and his obedience. Here's his message, Matthew chapter 3, 
Matthew writes, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Pretty simple. That was the same message, by the way, for the most part, of Jonah the prophet. Verse 3, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair. I see a lot of red and blue, red, white, and blue today. I don't see any, I don't, haven't noticed any camel's hair with anyone. It must have not had any camel's hair outfits at the mall, I guess. So John had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Right? Keep your watermelon, keep your barbecue sliders. I'll just have the locusts and wild honey. Thank you very much. That would be John's perspective. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. I mean, everybody was going to hear him. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, I'm going to pause there. John the Baptist, his baptism was a baptism that showed that a person was turning from their sin. It was somewhat, I think you could say, a preparation for the Messiah. If you remember, I'm not going to go along here on this, but if you remember the message that I preached on Priscilla and Aquila, remember they crossed paths with a fellow named Apollos. I don't know if you remember that or not, but Priscilla and Aquila, when they crossed paths with Apollos, after Jesus had already ascended, the, birth, the church had been born, they encounter Apollos, a man mighty in the scriptures, powerful communicator, and yet he had a little gap in his doctrine where he wasn't quite clear on the whole baptism thing. And if you remember, Priscilla and Aquila helped to straighten Apollos out so that he would be more accurate when he taught and when he preached. Well, it's centered around this. John, Jesus has not even been introduced, so to speak, formally in ministry yet. He certainly, are alive on the earth, hasn't been crucified, hasn't risen, hasn't ascended back to the Father. And so baptism later in the New Testament is going to be different. Baptism in the New Testament later, and for us today, it's an outward sign that we've already repented and have already placed our faith in Jesus. But in John's day, his baptism was one preparing the way. That's what he did, prepared the way for the Messiah, turning from sin. I'm going to show it through my baptism that I've repented of my sin. Now bring on the Messiah so that I can follow him. That was, that was kind of what baptism was in John's day so he's baptizing in the Jordan River as people confess their sins verse 7 and when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees they're the religious leaders coming for baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who wanted you who warned you to flee from the wrath to come <laughs> that's an interesting thing to say I mean I don't think we've ever I mean we've baptized a lot of people here through the years you know I don't think we've ever Welcome someone saying, hey, I'd like to be baptized, saying, well, you brood of viper, what do you want to do that for? None of us have ever said that. I don't think Jason has. I'm not sitting in with him when he meets with folks, but I'm pretty sure he hasn't ever really said that. Why would he say this? Because John the Baptist knew the heart of the people who were the religious leaders of the day. They just wanted to check the box. They just wanted, oh, we're supposed to be baptized? Okay, well, let's just check that box, and then we'll go on to being the prideful leaders that we want to be. It was the Sadducees and the Pharisees that would be responsible to a large degree for crucifying Jesus in the first place three and a half years later. And so John says to them, he, he, they have an opportunity to get it right, right here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He says in verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't come to me to be baptized in this river so, because you see it as just checking the box that you're going to go on living your life like you're the one in charge. 
like you hold the keys to heaven. That's not what this is about. He says, don't come with that attitude. Verse 9, he says, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. No, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These people, these religious leaders had an opportunity at the very beginning to get it right. And they didn't. A few of them would. Nicodemus would be one that would get it right. But most of them would later crucify Jesus because they were not humble and he did not fit their mold. So John the Baptist, not weak, he stands and he delivers a scathing message to them to reveal their sin so that they could ultimately get it right. You look over to John chapter 3. John 3 verse 23. John gives his perspective. It says John also was baptizing in Aenon, John the Baptist, near Salim because there was much water there. And they were coming and they were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John the Baptist, and they said to him, Rabbi, he, a reference to Jesus, who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you've testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. He, he's like, what's going on, John? Because the one you've talked about, he, everybody's going to him. I mean, we thought they were supposed to all come to you. Here's John's response, verse 27. John answered, and he said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John is saying, he's using this illustrative language to say, listen, this show is not about me right i'm just the friend of the bridegroom but the center stage is going to be the bridegroom and it's going to be his bride i'm just a sport a support here and then he nails it in the next verse in verse 30 when he says he must increase speaking of jesus but i must decrease john the baptist was an introducer to Jesus he would even go further you don't have to turn back here but back in Matthew chapter 3 again I stopped at verse 10 here's what he says in verse 11 he says as for me I baptize you with water for repentance but he Jesus who is coming after me is mightier than I I am not fit to remove his sandals he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What is John saying? He's saying, as he speaks of Jesus, as he speaks of the Messiah, he says, I don't even have the capacity. I'm not even worthy to do the one thing that a slave would do, and that would be to take, off, take his shoes off his feet. I'm not even worthy for that. He must increase, and I must decrease. It's not about me. I may be in the, in the spotlight. I may be up front. People may be coming to hear me. John the Baptist, very quick to say, but it's not about me. It's about him. He must increase. I must decrease. The marching order for every single Christian leader, he must increase. I must decrease. The marching orders for every single follower of Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. The marching orders for everyone who sings a song with a mic, preaches a message from a platform, the marching order of every single church in this world. He must increase, I must decrease. It's just that simple. 
It's not about us. It's not about you. We can do nothing without him. Don't forget the other side of that coin. True heroes are people of humility. And there's that balance between knowing I can't do anything without him, but also knowing that when he calls me and equips me, he can do anything through my life that's yielded to him. You know what? It would also be John the Baptist who would, who would hit the gospel in one verse. I don't know that he could have been any more clear. John chapter 3, verse 36. He just said in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. John 3, verse 36. He says, he who believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. There could not be a more clear presentation of the gospel by this MC, this paver of the way of the Messiah, than when he said that if you want to have the Son, if you want to have a relationship with God, it's going to come when you believe in Jesus. Not just with your, with your mind uh, that I believe he exists, but that you believe him to the point of trust where you surrender your life to him. And John says that whoever believes in him in that way, in the Son, in Jesus, has eternal life, right? John three sixteen kind of life, life everlasting. But he who does not obey the Son, he who does not yield, he who does not surrender, turning from sin, trusting in Jesus alone, will not see life, but rather has the wrath of God over him. Why is that? Because of sin that is unforgiven. Spoken by John the Baptist in humility, who would also see his life come to an end because he boldly proclaimed truth to a, to a government leader and was thrown in prison and beheaded as a result. True heroes are people of humility. It's when you step into the chaos, the need, the desperation of someone else and you bring help or you give hope and maybe it's money from your pocket. Maybe it's words from your heart. Maybe it's encouragement. Maybe it's assistance. Maybe it's physical help. Maybe it's sharing the gospel. Whatever it is, when you serve another person, listen, humility is going to be key because when you get credit and you get affirmation and you get the glory as John the Baptist, we quickly defer and deflect and point that to the person of Jesus. Why? Because he's the ultimate hero. So when you wring your heart out, is there more pride that comes out or is there more humility? There are only two options to having a more humble heart. James 4.10, we can humble ourselves or we can let God humble us. <laughs> As for me, I would hope to humble myself. I don't think any of us would want God to have to teach us humility. And yet at the same time, when we allow him to use us, we truly can be a hero to someone else because he has equipped us, because he calls us, and then it's to him that all the glory goes. Hey, have you given your life to Jesus today? You know, he who has the Son has the life, and if you've never given yourself to him, today you can begin a brand new relationship with God by turning from your sin, placing your faith in Jesus, asking him to forgive and take over, and if you've done that, man, he wants to use you as a hero to somebody else, not for your glory, but for his and he's equipped you and he's called you and he'll use you if you just surrender let's pray so God we thank you for this 
interesting example, Lord, of humility, a man, John the Baptist, who, whom you use greatly in ministry. I mean, the whole country, it seemed, was coming to hear him, Lord, as he would preach out in the wilderness, a voice crying in the wilderness, make way. Lord, he was a preparer of you, Jesus, the Messiah. He was not first. He was not most. He, he understood that his role was second place. Lord, I pray that for us, we ourselves, that we will also understand that our role in this world is second place, that it's not about us. It is always about you. Lord, that your desire is to bless us and is to provide for us. But Lord, at the same time, you want us to understand and recognize it's not because we deserve it, it's because of your grace. Lord, only you get the gratitude for any success to be found in our lives, any blessing to be found. All gratitude could only go to you. And any victories that come, Lord, to us or through us, any benefit that we are in the life of another, whether we serve others as a parent or as a spouse or as a, as a godly um, employer or whatever way, as we step into the chaos of other people and serve others, Lord, the way you've called us to, may it be quickly evident that it's because of you and not us. And may you get all the credit. And Lord, I pray that we'll be known as a church in this community for, for uh, quickly glorifying you as we quickly make a difference in the lives of people. God, a lot of ways, all of us are called to be a John the Baptist. Humble, preparers of the way of the Messiah. People who introduce others to you. And God, may you get glory through our lives as we obey that call and as we obey it well. Lord, thank you for using even us. God, the needs are great. Lord, thank you that you use people like us, humble and surrendered. Lord, help us to choose that. Help us to stay, to stay that way, God, humble and surrendered, that lives might be impacted for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.